answer this sentence for me or finish it. What goes up must come down, right? And we know that because there was this old dude who got hit on the head with an apple and came up with the theory of, that would be Einstein, which has a lot to do with this theory of gravity. And gravity fascinates me because gravity is a constant and it acts on all things the same. I saw this super cool YouTube video the other day. You know, they've always said that the only reason that a feather falls slower than a bowling ball is because of air resistance. And so they found this giant vacuum where they normally test spaceships and they dropped a feather and a bowling ball like 10 stories and they fall exactly the same. It's super cool and it's only a minute long. YouTube it. Thank me later. But the thing about gravity is how constant it is and how predictable it is and how immutable, meaning unquestionable it is, so that even a simple high school physics student can tell you with a good degree of accuracy where this ball is going to land if I throw it. They can't tell you where it's going to end up, but they can tell you where it's going to land. There's a few variables we have to factor in, right? There's velocity, right? Do I got, do I got some heavily guns? Like, can I hit the back wall? Or is it going to be more like that? right? There's trajectory, right? Am I going to throw it way up? First service, I hit that um, speaker and the sound crew warned me to not do it again. And then there's origination height, like how high off the ground was I when I threw it to begin with? Was I way up here or was it more like, like that? But if you factor in the variables, we can tell you where that ball is going to land because gravity never changes and it's always consistent and it's always constant. It's a law of nature. And I believe and I know that just as there are laws in nature, there are spiritual laws, forces, spiritual forces that act on everything that you have to factor into every one of life's equations, just like gravity. And so I want to talk about one of those this morning that is for me, at least in my life, much like gravity. It's a spiritual truth that anchors me. Every single biblical passage that I read, I look at through this lens, every single circumstance I come into, I evaluate this or I should, okay? I should evaluate this. Because it's immutable, it's unquestionable, it's never changing, and it affects everything. It's found in Psalm 119.68. We're going to go to Exodus in a minute. I'm just going to hit this one verse real quick, so you don't have to go there. We're going to put up on the board. Psalm 119.68 says this, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. God is good. In my life, that's like gravity. That's what holds me down. And it might seem like a very simple, very Sunday school truth, but don't mistake simple for foundational because the foundation is what everything else is built on. And we've been talking a lot about God's goodness lately. So some of you may remember three or four weeks ago, Matt did a sermon all about how dangerous it is if we don't believe God's goodness. Last week, Mr. Vidlack gave a great message about God's attributes where we touched on God's goodness. We're going through Genesis, which has a lot of stories about God's goodness in it, so we've been talking about it over and over and over again, but the reason we have been is because it's really, 
really important. And what I see as I read through my Bible is that it seems to be very, very important to God that you know that he is good. Because he repeats it over and over and over and over again. It starts out with creation. God creates and he says what? It's good. But it's not just creation. It's the stories of the Old Testament. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, right? All the horrible things that happened in Joseph's life, betrayed by his family, sold into slavery, falsely accused of a horrible crime. And yet Joseph stands at the end of his life, not too close to the speaker. He doesn't stand. He stands at the end of his life and he looks back on his life and he says, what? Everything you meant for evil, God meant for good, for the saving of many souls. Creation declares it even to this day as we walk around. I think it's one of the greatest pieces of evidence to us that God is good. The Old Testament stories picture it. Psalms proclaims it. I mean, Psalms just over and over and over again. God is good. Psalms 106.1. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Jesus comes and he exemplifies it. The prophets testified about it. Paul reminds us of it. It seems really, really, really important to God that you know that he is good. Why is that so important? And that's what I want to dive into this morning. And man, we could talk forever about this. But what I want to narrow this down for you is a few reasons, three reasons, in fact, why it's been so important in my life to see and to remember and to meditate on the fact that God is good. But before we get into that, we have to define what we mean by God is good. So grab your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 33. Because in English, we say the word good and it can mean a lot of different things. And a lot of the different things it can mean have to do with how we say it, right? Like if I say, yeah, it's good. Or I could say, good. Or I could say, it was good. Right? Those mean different things. And so if it's important to God that we know that he's good, we should probably know what he means when he says, I'm a good God. Exodus 33, verse 18. And we're picking this up in the middle of the story. And so here's where we're at. Moses has already gone up on Mount Sinai. He's met with God. He's received the Ten Commandments. He's come back down, and the children of Israel are not doing good, are they? They got a golden calf. They're dancing around. They're worshiping this thing. It's not good. And so Moses gets super angry, breaks the tablets. God is not happy. A bunch of people die. And now Moses has gone back out to the tabernacle to meet with God. Moses is saying, where we're at right now, God, it's not good. The people are not doing good. I'm pretty stressed out. Like I had a tablet that you wrote on and I broke it. Like it's not good. And what's interesting about this passage, if you read it, is it says that all the children of Israel are like standing at the edge of their tents, looking to see what's going to happen when Moses meets with God. Like, well, how is this going to go? And Moses comes to God and he makes a request. It's Exodus 33. Verse 18. 
And Moses says this, please show me your glory. God, it's really tough right now. It's not very good right now. I need some glory. Show me the glory. And what does God say? It's so interesting how he responds. And he, this being God, says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim you before, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. How interesting of an exchange. How often do I do this? God, I need to see your glory. I want to see your power. And God says, my power and my glory are seen in my goodness. They're in my goodness. That's where the real power is. It's not the thunder and lightning on the mountain. It's my nature that's powerful. And so he tells Moses, hey, I'm going I'm to pass my goodness by you. I'm going to tell you what it means that I'm good. And so he does in Exodus 34, next chapter, verse 6 through 7. It says this, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God. God is now going to show Moses his goodness He says, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, which can easily be translated slow to anger, which I find interesting because in Western culture, we think of someone who's really good as someone who never gets angry. But that's not what God says. He says he's slow to anger, right? He says, I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in goodness and truth. I keep mercy for thousands. I forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. I will by no means clear the guilty. God says, I'm good. And this is what it means that I'm good. I read an interesting quote. It says this, we can readily see the relationship between goodness and some of God's other attributes. For example, when his goodness gives of itself unconditionally and sacrificially, it is love. When it shows favor to the guilty and undeserving, it is grace. When it reaches out to relieve the miserable and distressed, it is mercy. When it shows patience, it is long-suffering. When it reveals to us the way things are, it's truth. When the Bible says that God is good, it's referring to all these qualities and more. You see, it's really, really, really important to God that you understand that he's good. And it's important to know what that means that he's gracious, that he's merciful, that he's long-suffering, that he's truth. All the stuff Dan talked about last week. Great message, by the way. If you didn't hear it, you should get it. And so God says, listen, it's important for you to understand that I'm good because it is now going to affect, like gravity, every other portion of your life. So how does an understanding of God's goodness affect our lives? The first thing is, It's the origination of our salvation, which is a bit of a tongue twister, and I'm glad I got that right. It's Romans 2.4. In Romans 2.4, Paul says this, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul says here, listen, it's not sinners in the hands of an angry God that makes people repent, it's God's goodness and kindness and mercy. It's what drew you to the Lord 
originally. And when we find ourselves feeling distant from God, we find ourselves just not feeling close, I think it's hugely beneficial to meditate on his nature, that he's a good God, that he's merciful, that he's long-suffering, that he's kind. It's what drew us to him originally. It's what will draw us back to them. It's his gravity that pulls everything near. But more importantly, at least in my walk with the Lord at this point, this really helps me witness to people. So how many of you have ever been sitting in a coffee shop or out about, and you hear that little voice in the back of your head, like, hey, you, you need to talk to that guy about, about me. Talk to him about, about Jesus. And you're like, oh, no. Because what if he asks one of those questions? You know those questions. Matt knows all the answer to those questions. I don't know all the answer to those questions. This is not going to be good. But the Bible does not say that knowledge leads people to the Lord, does it? And it doesn't say that having all the right answers draws people to him. He says, my gravity, that thing that will draw people to me is my goodness. And so when it comes to sharing your faith, that's what we need to talk about. Talk about God's goodness. Talk about what he did for us on the cross where he left heaven and lived a perfect life so that he could forgive me of all the things that I did to him and to other people who he loved. That he suffered unimaginably to forgive me. Oh, he is a good God. But also all the good things he's done in your life. Man, God saw me through this. It was a tough situation. Man, God was faithful in this. Man, I really needed an answer and God came through. Don't paint an unrealistic picture of the Christian walk. There's going to be trials. But our God is good. Amen? We serve a good God. And that's the message that we tell. See, God's goodness makes it so easy for me to tell other people about him. God is good. God is good. So first thing it does is it helps me to witness and draw near to him. But the second thing that God's goodness does for me is it helps me to obey. It helps me to obey. Go back to the very first verse, Psalm 119, 68. We're gonna put it back up there for you. It says this, you are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. Okay, another translation, right? The new James version. God, I know that you're good. I know that what you do is good. Tell me what to do. That's what this says. God, I know you're good. I know what you do is good. Now tell me what to do. And it's so important when we're struggling with obedience that we come back to God's goodness. Because God is going to ask us to occasionally do some hard things. Things that on the surface might not look that good. And if we don't have rock solid grounding belief in his goodness, it's going to be really hard to obey. You see, there's a saying we Americans have that if it feels good, do it, right? And we've gotten so lazy, we've shortened it. It's just do it. And I think that as a Christian culture, we've done a pretty good job of exposing the fallacy of that argument. 
right? There's a lot of things that feel good that you shouldn't do. Drugs feel good. Don't do those. And so we fought against that pretty well. But we're pretty susceptible to the inverse of that statement. If it doesn't feel good, don't do it. Oh, I fall into that trap. And I don't understand why we think that we can get more information from our feelings than from God's word. I mean, oftentimes God will confirm things in my spirit. That's different. But this is more just like, ah, I don't know. It just doesn't feel right. I'm not sure. It's not, I'm not excited about it. Like, that's a reason to not obey. I'm not excited about it. Okay. My daughter's never excited about the things I ask her to do. But God's going to ask us to do some hard things. And if we're not rock solid in our understanding that he is good, it's going to be hard to obey. I mean, maybe God is asking you to end a relationship, not a marriage. Do not misunderstand me. A relationship. God's asking you to end a relationship. And you're just like, oh, that's not going to be good. It's not going to be good. I'm good. I do good. What I ask you to do is good. I wouldn't ask you to do it if it wasn't good. Maybe God wants you to apologize to someone you know is not going to forgive you. How could that be good? Because I'm good and I do good. And what I ask you to do is good. Maybe God wants you to speak truth to a family member. And you know that that is going to be a lot of awkward holidays for the next few years. How could that possibly be good, Lord? And if we don't have a rock-solid understanding, belief, a weightiness to this theory that God is good, this belief that God is good, this understanding that he's good, it's going to be really hard for us to obey. It's going to be really hard to obey. Especially when he asks us to give up something we think is good. Right? That glass of wine on social occasions. It's not bad. The Bible doesn't say it's bad. There's nothing wrong with it. But maybe God wants you to give it up. You're like, ah, oh, but it's good. It's good. That TV show you're super into. It's so good. No, it's not. It's not. It's not good. Maybe it's your weekly poker game with your buddies. Or your secure job. And God's saying, I need you to step out in faith and do this. And you're like, it's not going to be good. I'm good, God says. I do good. What I ask you to do is good. Maybe God wants you to give up your organized life and invite a foster child into your home. You're like, that's not going to go good. But God is good. And if you find yourself struggling to obey something that God has placed on your heart, spend some time this next week praying about his goodness because chances are that's really what you're struggling with. You're not struggling with obedience. You're struggling with God's goodness because if you really, really believe that he was good and what he asked of you was good, you'd listen. Yeah, but James, I did listen. I did I stepped out from that job. I invited that foster kid in my life and it has been hard. It has been rough. I am in a trial right now and I do not really feel like God is that good. 
And there's verses that pastors always go to about this. Everyone's favorite is Romans 8, Romans 8, 28, right? For we know that all things work together for good, right? And we do know that. But I love what David says in Psalm 27. I had heard this verse before, but after this study, this is a life verse for me now. Here's what David says. He says, I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And I see David at the end of his life writing this and he's thinking back and he's thinking about the day that he was anointed. Man, that was good. The day that he stepped out in faith and killed Goliath, that was good. And then he spent the next decades of his life hiding in caves, cold, tired, and hungry, and scared. And as he looks back on all this, he writes, I would have lost heart. Anyone feel like losing heart from time to time? Yeah. I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. What comes first, belief or sight? Belief. And then when he believes, does he immediately see? No, it says that God strengthened him to give him more belief. David looks back and says, listen, I know it's tough. I know it's hard. I know it's not what you expected, but what you really need is patience. Wait. Wait on the Lord. And then what he says here is really interesting to me. He says that he would have lost heart if he had not believed he would see the goodness of the Lord someday in heaven. Is that what he says? No, he says, in the land of the living. Interesting. Interesting. But so many of us do this. So many of us take a single circumstance or a single trial, and I'm not diminishing them, they're hard, a single time period in your life, and we use it as evidence in this courtroom where God's goodness is on trial. Right? We thought it was going to look like this. Here, catch. Oh. Right next to the nine o'clock. <laughs> Gravity's not real. Seems to be. I've got some good evidence that gravity's not real. What do we need for that balloon to come down? Someone in the first service said a gun. <laughs> and I thought, pastor, school, gun. No. <laughs> Plus, I'm not certain I could hit it, which would be super embarrassing. We need patience. Did that teach us anything about gravity? No, it really taught us something about helium. We need patience. And some of us feel like that. Man, I don't feel grounded anymore. I had my feet firmly planted and I just feel, I'm just out there right now. Maybe you feel like your life is a mylar balloon, right? How many parents hate mylar balloons? Okay, those things last forever. I, we have a Mylar balloon. I think it's from last Easter. It's not true. It's a lie. Sorry. I think it's from Valentine's Day or something. 
They last forever. What does David say? Decades I was chased. If I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord, man, I would have lost heart. I would have lost heart. But here's what happens to me, to you, to us. We take these circumstances, these isolated events, and we use them in this courtroom where God's goodness is on trial. And the problem is this. If God is on trial, he can't be on the throne. And if he's on trial, who's the judge? I am. I'm going to decide whether or not you're good. And when I decide that I'm the judge, things get off the rails quickly. Because if I'm judge, then I'm supposed to decide who gets forgiven. And I do not have God's capacity for forgiveness. And if you struggle with forgiveness, it may be because you've got God on trial instead of on the throne. If I'm the judge, then it's my job to make the rules. And it's my job to enforce the rules. And I get really legalistic really quickly and really self-righteous. I'm judge. God's on trial. If I'm judge, then I'm responsible to see that everybody gets justice. I struggle with this one. There's a lot of injustice in the world. There's a lot of injustice in the world. And when I start thinking about all the injustice in the world and I start questioning God's goodness through it, I, I, I find myself as a judge, I find myself angry, I find myself frustrated. And what I haven't given the situation is patience because what does God say about all the injustice in the world? He says someday he's going to make it right. But if I'm judge, I gotta make it right. Now God wants to partner in us, with us in seeing justice in our communities. That's a different thing. If I'm judge, who makes all the decisions in my life? If I'm judge, who am I listening to? And when I put God's goodness on trial and I put myself as judge, man, I get off the rails quickly. Man, I get off the rails quickly. But it's so easy to do because things don't always look the way we thought they were gonna look. And I start to lose heart. And I gotta pray for courage and strength and patience. Okay, maybe you're looking at me today and you're thinking, okay, that's great. In fact, I really want to believe all that. But there's this issue. There's this problem you see. The world is an evil, evil, evil place. How can a good God possibly allow all of that evil? I'm not so certain God is good. What do you say to that? You know, it's interesting. There's like a new book, a new Christian book comes out on this like every six months, which tells me something. They haven't figured it out yet, okay? No one's writing new math books because we know the answers. And there's a bunch of arguments and things you can think through, but I love, 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 love something I heard Timothy Keller say two weeks ago, and it just resonated with my spirit. He said that when you're dealing with the problem of how a good God could allow evil, you have to look at the cross. Now hear me out for a second, because he said something next that shocked me. He said, the cross does not answer that question. What? He says, but it does tell you what the answer can't be. It does tell you what the answer can't be. Ever, anyone ever ask someone a question and they give you an answer and you go, I don't really know what the answer is, but that's not it. 
right? So I went to India a number of years ago with Jason Patton, our youth pastor. And if you don't know Jason Patton, just think high school youth pastor and Southern California surfer kind of combined into one ball of irresponsibility (laughs) and fantastic fun, right? (laughs) And so we took some kids to India and we land in India and we land in this crazy city. I mean, there's people everywhere. And I've always been a bit of a kind of a geography bomb. I just think it's interesting. And so I knew that the most populated city in the world was Tokyo. It had 25 million people in it at that point. It's got about 30 now, 25 million. And I was kind of curious as to how this city compared. So I asked Jason, who I falsely assumed had done some research on the place he was taking high school kids. And he'd been there before. And I said, hey, how many people live in this city? And he goes, um... Like 200 million. No. No, really, dude, there's like 200 million. No. I don't know what the answer is. That's not it. And he had some logic, which was super funny, because he goes, no, dude, seriously, there's a billion people in India. This is one of the five largest cities. 200 million. No. No. Keller says that's what the cross does. Because we come to it with this question, how could a good God allow all this evil? And what the cross screams to us is, it's not because he isn't good. It's not because he doesn't understand suffering. That's not the answer. It can't be because he doesn't care. Look what he went through. It can't be because he doesn't love us. It's not because he isn't good. The cross tells us unconditionally that's not the answer to that question. And I don't know if we're going to get a satisfactory answer to this question this side of heaven, but I don't need one because it doesn't shake my understanding of God as good because of what he did for me on that cross. That tells me that isn't the answer. The answer isn't that God isn't good. Look at that. The greatest good in the entire world that came about because of his suffering, he's good. Man, he's good can't be that. can't be that. So does that mean then that we should never question God's goodness? Is that what we're saying? Kind of? Not really? Maybe? A little bit? How's that for an answer? Does that work for you? Okay, and we're done. No, um, if you're out here and you've never accepted the Lord into your life, you've never decided that you're going to walk with the Lord, that he is your all in all, that you haven't really been convinced by his kindness, then you need to spend some time wrestling through this. You need to spend some time studying the cross, studying the Bible, seeing what he did, because his kindness will draw you to repentance. But for those of us who are Christians and we've already accepted the cross, we've already decided that God is good. but we still need to ask questions about it. Let's go back to gravity for a second. It's really important that we ask questions about gravity because if we didn't ask questions about gravity, we wouldn't know that Earth's escape velocity is 25,000 miles an hour, if I can nerd out for a minute. And that's how fast you have to make a rocket go to get to the moon. So it's really important that we know that. But if I'm standing at the edge of a cliff, it's really dangerous for me to ask whether or not gravity exists. Is it not? And I see this played out very well in the life of the prophet Habakkuk. So turn with me to the book 
of Habakkuk. And I highly recommend you go to Matthew and work backwards. It's much easier. Okay? Go to Matthew and then work your way backward from Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai, Zephaniah, Habakkuk. Okay? Really small little book. If you get to Nahum or Micah or Jonah, too far. Turn around. You turn. Come back to Habakkuk. And I hadn't studied this book in a long time until I emailed Matt a couple weeks ago and said I was going to teach on this topic. And he's like, dude, you got to study Habakkuk. And I've been reading it almost every morning for the last two weeks. I recommend you do this next week. It only takes about 10 minutes. It's an awesome book. It's an awesome book. And here's how it starts. Habakkuk 1, verse 1 through 4. Habakkuk says this, O Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. Man, I live in an unjust, unlawful, awful place right now, God. How can this be good? And what are you doing about it? That's what Habakkuk says. And so God responds and says, don't worry, Habakkuk, I'm raising up the Babylonians and they will crush Israel. And Habakkuk goes, no, 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 no. That's not what I asked. That can't be good either. That's not good either, Lord. That's all of chapter one. And then we get to the end of chapter one after Habakkuk has been talking with the Lord and wrestling through these things. And it's absolutely beautiful. It's Habakkuk 2 verse 1. And here's what he says. After he's asked of the Lord, how can this possibly be good? He says, and I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Oh yeah, Habakkuk asks, But then he says, and now I will listen. We don't do that very well. Why, 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 why? And sometimes God is there like, I can answer when you're done. Okay, but you can't hear me if you keep yelling. And then he answers Habakkuk because Habakkuk listens. And very often when we're struggling with this, God wants to give us a word from this. And we're going to have to listen. We're going to have to camp ourselves on the rampart and pour through this thing and work this thing out and listen to what God is going to respond. And then what's so interesting to me is what Habakkuk says here. And what I will answer when I am vindicated. Is that what he says? No. When I am justified in my anger with God. No. When I'm corrected. See, Habakkuk expects to be corrected. He's got a learning spirit. Habakkuk is coming in saying this. He isn't saying, God, I don't think you're good. He's saying, God, I know you're good. How is this possibly good? Help me to understand. That's what he says. It's a very different question. It's a very important question. And then here's what God does in chapter three. In chapter three, God gives Habakkuk some vision. He gives him some words. And what God does not do is explain to Habakkuk why what he's going through currently is good. What God does is he reminds Habakkuk 
of all the good that he has already done. And very, very often in the Bible, in my own life, in people I talk to, when you ask the question, how can this possibly be good, and you wait and you listen for an answer, the answer is almost always, it's good. Don't you remember how good I am? Don't you remember all the good I've done? I'll work this out. It's a remembrance. God reminds Habakkuk, hey man, I held the sun and the stars still. I spanned the universe. Don't you remember what I've done? And what's so interesting is how this book ends. It's 3 verse 17. And this is what Habakkuk says. After he has asked, listened, remembered, he says this, though the fig tree may blossom, though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, have things gotten better? No, they haven't gotten better. Yet, he says, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he will make my feet like deer's feet. He will make me walk on high hills. Once Habakkuk remembers what God has done, he can say, even in this crazy circumstance, I will rejoice and I will joy because I have remembered. I think this is the key. This is it. This is how we avoid putting God on trial in our lives. This is how we rock solid hold on to his goodness so that we can obey. This is how we can be so excited to give our testimonies is we remember what God has already done. We remember what God has already done. And one of the best ways to do that is at the table. What does Jesus say? Do this in remembrance of me. And I love to think about some of the first communions. Okay, not the very first one where Jesus institutes it, but the first communions after that. We've had all the disciples, they've been out, they've been going through Jerusalem, people have been getting saved, people have been getting healed, new people are coming in, and they're gonna gather all of the believers together in the upper room, and they're gonna share a meal together. But before they share a meal, they're gonna stand around, and what are they gonna do? They're gonna swap stories because it's a bunch of fishermen, right? And that's what we do. And so I can just see it. I see John standing over there with like a new believer who's just come in and he's telling the story. He's like, no, seriously, Peter stepped out of the boat onto the water and started to sink. It was hilarious. Don't bring it up, right? (laughs) Seriously, oh man. You got another conversation going over here. Jesus really fed 5,000 people. He not only fed 5,000 people, we couldn't carry the leftovers. Wow. Wow. And then they're going to break bread together and they're going to drink together and they're going to remember their Lord. And so this morning, as we're talking about God's goodness and as we're going to get to the table and remember him, my question for you is, what's your favorite story about Jesus? Not your favorite Bible story, your favorite story about what Jesus did in your life. I'll tell you one of mine. Um, Growing up in the church, always kind of wanted to hear God speak, like really speak, 
Like how many of you guys have wanted that? Like I want God to just speak to me. Okay, yeah, we've all wanted that. And he did one time, maybe. I mean, it was definitely God, but I was alone in my car. So I don't know if it was audible or not, or if it was like one of those tree falling in the forest sort of a scenarios, but it was loud in my head. And I'm driving and I'm, I'm driving to Portland and I'm kind of grumbling because God told me to move to Portland and I do not want to. And God says, stop whining. <laughs> Which is not what you wait your entire life to hear God say. <laughs> I'll finish that story some other time for you. Um, what's your favorite story about God? Psalms 9.1 says this. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all your wonderful deeds. So the next few minutes as we worship, as we prepare to commune together, I want you to think about what's your favorite story about Jesus. And then on the way home, tell your spouse, tell your kids, recount it. It's powerful. It's what keeps us anchored to his goodness because we forget so very, very, very easily. And maybe you're out there and you don't have a good story about Jesus because you've never walked with him. You've never met with him. Let me tell you the best story that every Christian has about Jesus. It's the fact that when you put your faith in him, he takes all your sins and he washes them white as snow and it's available to you. It's the best story about Jesus there is that his death equals your life. Greatest story. What's your Jesus story? What's your Jesus story? Because he is good. He's a good, good father. Amen? Amen. Father, thank you that you are good, that you love us, that your mercies never fail. Help us to remember your goodness. Jesus name amen